Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 41st edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Digital War Room, one of the leading platforms for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is the ethical implications of NSA surveillance for lawyers. We're delighted to welcome our friend and frequent co-presenter, Dave Reese. Dave is a member in the Pittsburgh office of Clark Hill Thorpe Reed, where he practices in the areas of environmental, commercial, and technology law and litigation. He regularly deals with privacy and security issues in his practice and frequently writes and speaks on them for legal, professional, and academic groups. As usual, Dave, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's always great to work with both of you. Well, we certainly do that a whole lot, so I'm glad we like one another. It would be tough if we didn't. (laughs) It would be tough. It would be tough. Dave, there's been a lot in the press recently about the NSA receiving information from an ally about surveillance of a U.S. law firm. I think it's very poorly understood by most of the lawyers we've talked to. So can you explain what that's all about? Well, I can explain a little bit about it because we still don't know a lot uh, about what's going on. But, you know, there there have been past instances over the last several years where there were issues of the NSA monitoring or potentially monitoring communications that include attorney-client communications. And then there were the disclosures by Edward Snowden starting in June of last year about widespread interception of communications by the NSA, both international and domestic. And with that came a concern, are they intercepting attorney-client communications? Well, at least one instance came out last month. The New York Times reported that one of the leaked documents included communications between the Australian Signals Directorate, which is Australia's counterpart of the NSA, between it and the NSA that partner with each other, and it discussed interception of communications between the Indonesian government and a U.S. law firm that was representing the Indonesian government. So there we have an example, post-Snowden, of at least one attorney, international attorney, client communication with a U.S. law firm that was intercepted. So we have this one example of the one law firm, but you mentioned, Dave, that generally there's been a lot of news about the interception of communications in general. So can you expand a little bit more on what the implications for U.S. law firms would be? Well, I think law firms that are engaged in international communications, whether it be for foreign clients or for U.S. clients or with uh, U.S. clients that just happen to be traveling, that they have to consider at least the potential for, uh, for interception. So law firms have to review their communications, their communications channels, and consider strong encryption and other kinds of protection, perhaps leaving some conversations to, uh, to face-to-face. So there are definite implications. We just don't know how serious they are yet. 
Interesting. I'm going to interject a question here. Do you think that this will mean that we will go back to the old days when we used to meet on park benches in Moscow between the spies and the handlers and those they were working? Do you think that we're going to go to things like the black phone? Is that part of what they're going to have to consider? <laughs> How about Maxwell Smart's cone of silence? Well, <laughs> I think for some attorneys that, for instance, who are representing terror suspects and things of that nature, it may have to go to that. But of course, we now all know that there are powerful electronic listening devices that even the park bench might not be safe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's depressing. It's depressing. All right. I think, Sharon, you're going to need to wear your tinfoil hat. Uh, yeah, I actually made one, David. I took a picture, but I just it, somehow it didn't do much for me in, in terms of uh, sartorial splendor, so I deleted the picture. Uh, <laughs> tell us, what are bar groups, and especially the American Bar Association, doing to address this kind of surveillance? Well, preliminarily, you know, bar groups, including the ABA, are educating attorneys about their obligations with technology, including their duty to safeguard data generally, teaching them how to uh, do it, where to get information, and things of that nature. And, of course, the three of us do that through the Law Practice Division. But last year, in August of 2013, at the ABA annual meeting, the ABA passed a cybersecurity resolution, and it condemned the intrusion by any government, not just foreign governments, on attorney-client communications and relationships, and asked the U.S. government to work to develop mechanisms to prevent and deal with the protection of attorney-client information. Also, right after the New York Times article that I mentioned, the president of the ABA wrote a letter to the director of the CIA and the general counsel of the CIA asking them what's going on and what are you doing to protect attorney-client communications. Even before that, the New York Bar, in one of the U.S. Supreme Court cases, wrote an amicus brief to uh, protect attorney-client relationships from surveillance. So the bars are working toward it. I think we're going to see more of that as the picture develops further. So what about what's been happening in the courts, Dave? Can you talk about that? Yeah, there's been a lot going on over time. You know, first of all, we have the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that is mostly secret, but it's starting to disclose some things. And to the extent that this kind of surveillance is legal, that's the court that was set up by Congress to make sure that everything is legal. It's the one that issues the orders and controls everything. But we've seen a couple things. At the beginning of 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision in Clapper versus Amnesty International. That was a lawsuit by some reporters and attorneys challenging the NSA's interception of international communications. In that case, the Supreme Court punted on it and found a lack of standing because actual harm to the plaintiffs would require a chain of contingencies that hadn't been established. But after the Snowden revelations, there have been two challenges that have been heard by courts to the phone tracking, and this is the information that's being gathered in the United States, not the international information like the, uh, you know, the law firm in Indonesia. And within a few days of each other, we had two courts with opposite rulings. First, the District of D.C. granted a preliminary injunction for the plaintiff or plaintiffs in that case, finding that the phone tracking was likely unconstitutional. So that was on December 16th of last year. 
On December 27th, the Southern District of New York, in a case brought by the ACLU, found that the phone tracking is legal. So that's going to have to be sorted out in the appellate courts and, and perhaps going to the Supreme Court. I think we're going to have Congress intervening while that's going on. Well, that ought to be quite the circus, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. There, there, there's also been a lot of publicity about law firms getting hacked, including some sophisticated intrusions by foreign governments, although I'm not sure there's not intrusion by our own, but certainly intrusions by foreign governments. What's been happening with that? Well, the three of us have been teaching in this area for years, and particularly John and I, when we've done some of the information security sessions, for a long time, told attorneys, it's not a matter of if you're going to be successfully attacked by hackers, it's a matter of when, and we've now reached the when. Starting in 2008, 2009, 2010, in that time frame, there have now been actually disclosed instances of successful hacking of U.S. and Canadian law firms by foreign interests and foreign governments. The FBI, at a session that it put on in New York, mentioned that it is seeing hundreds of law firms being targeted. Mandiant, which is one of the leading breach investigations firms, in some earlier presentations mentioned that in the tens, I think it was around 101 year, around 80 another year. So it's happening. And a good example was reported by Bloomberg News. There was a deal going on in Canada where some potash mines were for sale, and the Chinese were very interested in killing the deal. It turned out, this was during 2011, that seven Canadian law firms were hacked and two Canadian government agencies to get information about the transaction to try to kill it. So it's here, and law firms are facing everything from the, you know, the small incident of the lost or stolen laptop or the dishonest or disgruntled employee up to this kind of large-scale, very persistent hacking. And the persistent hacking is often in the law firm for a very long period of time, and the law firms usually find out about it from someone on the outside, not themselves. So, Dave, can you tell our listeners what duties law firms have to safeguard the information relating to their clients? Because I'm sure some of them don't realize that in today of all these cyber attacks that we're seeing. Sure. There are four packages of duties that the attorneys have. And first are the ethics duties. And, you know, those, as amended by um, the ABA in 2012, require attorneys to take competent and reasonable measures to safeguard information relating to clients. And it goes into a lot more detail and depth, but that's the overview. Second, attorneys have a parallel common law duty. Again, it's reasonable care under the circumstances. If an attorney violates the ethics duties, then the sanctions the disciplinary action. If an attorney violates the common law duties, the sanction is a malpractice or professional negligence action. And in both cases, of course, you have a disgruntled client or former client. Two duties that can go beyond those are a contractual duty. We're seeing more and more clients, particularly those in regulated industries, requiring by contract that attorneys take either generally reasonable measures to protect their data and sometimes very specific detailed requirements that go on for pages. And finally, there are regulatory requirements for information that's protected by state or federal law about individuals like healthcare information, personal financial information, and things of that nature, 
if attorneys have protected information that's covered by one of those requirements, then there's a duty to protect it. So, you know, the package requires competent and reasonable measures to safeguard the information at the broad high level. And with contracts and regulatory duties, there can be very specific ones beyond that. An important closing point on this is these are minimum duties. If an attorney doesn't comply with these, he or she are violating the ethics or legal obligations they have to clients. And, of course, we should aim for going well above that as a matter of client service and professional practice. Well, good stuff there. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. Don't be caught unprepared for e-discovery. Digital War Room e-discovery software allows you to search, review, mark, and produce responsive email and documents. Powerful enough for your biggest cases, but easy enough for first-time e-discovery attorneys. Geeks need not apply. Digital War Room has a solution for every client, every case, and every budget. Visit www.digitalwarroom.com for a free trial and see how easy e-discovery can be. Make your next case your best case with Digital War Room. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking about the ethical implications of NSA surveillance for lawyers with cybersecurity expert Dave Reese, a member in the Pittsburgh office of Clark Hill Thorpe Reed. You mentioned, Dave, in the first part of this podcast about the 2012 ABA amendments to the Model Rules of Professional Conduct to address competency and confidentiality in the lawyer's use of technology. Can you give us a little more details about the changes and particularly the factors to consider and what's reasonable? Sure. I want to first start out by saying that the changes were in the language, not in attorney's duties. And the Ethics 2020 Commission made it clear that they were just making express what was already implied in the existing rules and existing comments and existing ethics opinions. So we're talking about changes in language that reinforce duties that were already there. The first change was into the rule on uh, competence, which happens to be Rule 1.1, and there was an addition to the comment there that said that competency requires both having and keeping abreast of changes so that attorneys understand both the benefits and risks of using technology. So that's the starting point. Then in Model Rule 1.6 on confidentiality, a new part was added to the rule that expressly says that attorneys have to take reasonable measures to make sure that information relating to clients isn't inadvertently exposed or isn't subject to unauthorized access. So it covers both the attorney sending the email or the document inadvertently himself or herself or you know someone else breaking into or otherwise getting access to the information. And the comment just gives some of the things to weigh in determining what is reasonable. And they include the sensitivity of the information. If it's more sensitive, it requires greater protection. The risk that it will be disclosed without additional safeguards. The cost of additional safeguards the difficulty of implementing additional safeguards, 
and the effect that the safeguards have on the attorney's ability to use the technology. And just a quick example, you could require a 32-word password with you know upper and lower characters and symbols and numbers and everything else. That would be easy to implement to actually just plug into the technology. It would be inexpensive, but it would make it virtually impossible to use the technology. So it's kind of a balancing of those kinds of things, all starting with how sensitive is the information and how much is it at risk. Well, Dave, what should lawyers do to protect the information relating to their clients when we're talking about this foreign and domestic surveillance? I guess, in, to paraphrase it, kind of electronic eavesdropping? Well, you know, it's kind of a starting point. I think that there are few, if any, law firms that could fully protect themselves against persistent surveillance from the U.S. government or a foreign government. It would be almost impossible to totally protect a law firm and its clients from that if you're going to use any kind of technology and you're going to use any kind of electronic communications. So there are a lot of things that can be done, but I think it's impossible to have to have total protection. So, I mean, one of the things that's important there is for the attorneys and clients to understand the issues, get expert advice, and together decide what risks they're willing to take and what technical and other protection they're going to use to uh, try to protect themselves from surveillance. So I think it's having high-end qualified security professionals advising the attorney and the client and then using the best that you can to protect it. And for situations where you can't, as I think one of you mentioned earlier, go back to the face-to-face, but watch out for eavesdroppers and go back to pen and pencil but don't send them even by mail. I mean, it's really tough if it's persistent surveillance by someone who has the power and tools to do it. Well, we're all part of the same club, that's for sure, which means, of course, that we all understand that encryption's got to be part of the solution, but lawyers have been so resistant to it, with very rare exceptions. Do you think that this is the tipping point, and do you think that encryption still can withstand what the NSA is capable of, since we know they're working so hard on decryption? I think we're going to have to bust out our decoder rings, Dave. Well, I mean, from everything (laughs) I've read and heard, Encryption, if it's properly implemented and properly used, it can withstand the NSA attempts to break it. But, you know, that may change. Attorneys who have highly sensitive information, like the kinds of things we're talking about, I think really has to use high-end encryption technology and needs highly qualified professionals to help them set it up and implement it. But as you know from presentations John and I have given and things that we've written, it's my view that all attorneys should be using encryption on laptops, smartphones, tablets, and portable media. And there's even a move by some to encrypt desktops. Part of that's driven by HIPAA, but you know some of it's moving there. As far as electronic communications, I think that it's reached the point, or at least getting close to it, where all attorneys should have encryption available For use in appropriate cases, I don't think attorneys necessarily have to encrypt every communication within clients, but some of them for most attorneys are confidential enough that I think they should be doing it. So encryption is part of the solution, but it's got to be real high-end encryption by people who really know what they're doing for attorneys with highly sensitive kind of information that governments may be after. 
What was that, Sharon, that Bruce Schneier said that encryption drives the NSA batty or something like that? Yes, it does. And, you know, I never read a, a line that made me happier. So if encryption is driving the NSA crazy, then encryption seems like a real good solution for now. Yep, yep. So, Dave, any thoughts on what's in the future on surveillance of U.S. law firms? Well, I think we're going to find out more about what's going on. You know, some in response to the letter that the ABA wrote, but I mean, the ABA doesn't really have power over government agencies. So I I think we're going to see more from Congress. That's just going to be part of the driver. I think Congress is really interested after the Snowden revelations of getting more of a handle of what's going on, having clear legal definitions, having some transparency, and not necessarily public knowledge of everything that the NSA is doing, but at least having some internal accountability. You know, President Obama appointed a task force that came out with some recommendations along those lines. He has said he's going to implement some of them and study other ones. So I think we're going to probably see that more surveillance has been going on of U.S. law firms, some of it probably by foreign governments. I think it would be foolish to think that the biggest risk is from the NSA or the NSA's allies, because there is at least some accountability and some rule of law there. I think a much bigger risk for law firms doing international business are foreign governments that don't have any legal restraints. But I think it's going to be with us, and we're going to have to be more cautious and try to deal with it. Well, and there's a webinar I think you wanted to reference, Dave. Yes. John and Sharon and I have done a webinar for the ABA Center for Professional Development. It'll be done by the time this podcast is published, but it is going to be a 90-minute webinar going into more detail on the things that we're just touching the surface of today. Well, we sure want to thank you for joining us, Dave, and I'll tell you, I suspected for a long time that the NSA and, and some of its allies in the Five Eyes Alliance were perhaps doing things they, sh- they should not have been doing, but one of the things that I found most amusing was on a trip down 95, we stopped at Fredericksburg to grab something to eat at a McDonald's, and in the ladies' room, in big block letters in one of the toilet stalls was graffiti that said, Orwell was right. <laughs> I took a picture of it, which I'm sure made the person in the next stall wonder what the heck I was taking a picture Mm -hmm. of. But in any event, I have had the feeling for some time that we are like prisoners in some prison where the warden can see all of us, can see each of us. We never know when the warden is watching. We can't see the prisoners. We can't see the warden. And we're heading more and more in that direction. So I'm a little bleaker probably than Dave would be, but Dave's an eternal optimist. But all, (laughs) all of this wisdom you've given us today and the things to prudently do certainly has been very helpful and your expertise as always shines and I am always amazed at how you keep up with absolutely everything in light of a crushing litigation schedule. So thanks for taking the time to be with us today. I'm glad to participate. As I said, I always like working with both of you and we learn a lot from each other, which is the greatest part when you're doing educational programs and you know, the people presenting them learn for each other, then it's the best you can get. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. 
Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.